0: Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Today we are going to consider some of the most famous verses about Christmas. And when you hear me read these in a few minutes, some of you are going to have a flashback to Charlie Brown's Christmas. And if you're being really honest, and if I'm being really honest, I'm going to hear this text in Linus's voice. And I bet some of you are going to as well. And with that, a lot of us bring many things to Christmas, right? To this time of year, not just knowing about Charlie Brown's Christmas. For me, something I bring is a positive memory. Bring some negative too, just like all of you. But a positive memory for me, just real quick, young people, as we have you here in the service, I felt like I should share this today. I have two younger brothers. My brothers and I would mess with each other growing up. We thought we were geniuses. We would go out in the yard in our property and get all these big heavy rocks and we would look for the biggest cardboard box, pile rocks and weights and just heavy stuff in these boxes, wrap it up to trick each other that this Christmas was a big heavy gift, that it was really something good. And it wasn't, it was a box of rocks with maybe like a G.I. Joe figure or a few sports card packs, right? And by sharing that with you, looking back, reflecting on it, that gives me some joy around this time of year. But I'm also confessing to you that a few times my brothers did trick me. I was like, hey, this is different this year, big heavy gift. And it was a surprise. (laughs) On the flip side, for a lot of us as well, coming into this time of year, we bring with us a lot of grief too, don't we? grief. I bet if we did a raise of hands in the room, a lot of us have lost a loved one around this time of year. And how can you not think about that? How can you not feel the sense of loss that you miss that person or those people, those loved ones in your life, right? So we come to Christmas running the gamut across the spectrum. And also on top of that, the world all around us says so many things about what Christmas is to us, right? Just this last week, I was listening to some Christmas music and an ad came on for Honda. And what I'm about to tell you, I have nothing against Hondas, okay? Our family drives one, but the ad says this. It says literally, whatever Christmas means to you, and then it goes on to say, you know, you should drive a Honda. That's the message of the world, isn't it? That we get to define what Christmas is for us. But over and against that, here in God's word in Luke chapter 2, we're going to see that God is the only one who gets to define what Christmas is really about. And what's amazing is that God clearly tells us and compellingly shows us what Christmas is truly all about. So I hope you have a Bible in front of you. You should be in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read aloud for us now. Verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Father, we praise you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I pray that you will fix our hearts on Jesus today. Open your word to us this morning and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. From Luke chapter 2, we are going to see three things today. We're going to consider three things together. First, how do people respond to the reality of Christmas? Second, What is Christmas from heaven's perspective? And then third and lastly, what does all of this mean for us? All right, so first, how do people respond to the reality of Christmas? Again, push past the familiarity, look down at the Bible in front of you, put your finger on the page, and look with me at verses 1 through 7. In verses 1 through 5, basically Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is setting the foundation showing that the birth of Jesus Christ was fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And then it all builds to verses six and seven, right? When you really like read it and reread it, it's kind of shocking, just like how matter-of-factly Luke comments on the reality of what happens. Just look down at verses six and seven, what happens. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Kind of understated, right? So what does all of this mean? To help us get the meaning, again, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, introduces two new characters on the scene to help us really understand what's happening. An angel and the shepherds. And why would Luke do this? Okay, there's lots that could be said for a few reasons. One of them is around the same region. Just think about this. A long time before, the shepherd king, King David, was watching sheep as a shepherd around the same area too, right? That's pretty cool. But primarily, notice what happens and especially what the response is of the shepherds. That welcomes us in to what's happening here. These shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks by night in the darkness, right? And what happens? An angel of the Lord appears, and what does the angel say? The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So the shepherds are filled with great fear. Probably for some of you, again, maybe you heard this from Linus. The King James Version says the shepherds were sore afraid, right? The Greek word that's translated here as great fear basically means frightened with massive fear. So the shepherds weren't just surprised. It's not a surprise party. They weren't just startled. They really, truly were frightened with great fear. And why were they so afraid? I don't want us to miss this. It's because of the light, isn't it? And just think about that. At first glance, that sounds really strange, Right? The shepherds are in the dark and they're just fine. They're comfortable. They're not afraid at all. The light comes and then they're afraid. For those of you who are grandparents or parents in this room, like this should surprise you, right? Okay, Carrie and I have seven kids. Not one time has any of our kids, when they were younger, woke me up in the middle of the night because they're afraid of the light, <laughs> right? They're afraid of the dark, but not the shepherds. They're fine in the dark, they're afraid. Of the light. So, what's going on here? Why are they scared of light? And when you really press into it, it's because it's not just any kind of night light, (laughs) it's because it's a particular kind of light here. Look at verse 9. It says it's the light of the glory of God. So, in other words, they have every reason to be afraid they should be afraid. That's the right response. Because across the Bible, whenever God gets close to people, people are terrified. And again, why? And the reason why, when you peel back all the layers, is you have to go to the beginning of your Bible, back to the beginning of Genesis, back to the garden with Adam and Eve, right? Because before Adam and Eve sinned, a lot of us know this in this room, but just bring this and help it shed light on the story in Luke, Luke 2. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they would literally walk with God in the garden. The glory of God would shine around them. It's like what they were made for, wasn't it? So it makes sense that Adam and Eve didn't know fear at all. They had a perfect relationship with the all-powerful, all-powerful, all loving God of the universe. What was there to be afraid of? But then those of us that are familiar with the Bible, we know Genesis 3 is coming, don't we? Adam and Eve sin. They believed the lie of the serpent that they had to take control of their own lives to be happy. They believed the lie that they couldn't trust God they basically decided that they wanted to be on the throne of their own lives rather than God. And that's the same lie that's in all of our hearts too. That lie has infected every human heart since the garden to now in Gresham, Oregon, okay? What's the first thing that happens after Adam and Eve sin? How do they experience this new reality? They're afraid They're afraid of the presence of the glory of God, the light of the glory of God. And again, this is true across the whole Bible. Look for this in 2024 as you're doing your Bible read through. Look at the light of the glory of God and look at people's response. Because whenever God comes close, people as sinners are terrified. Like we can nod our head and be like, yeah, but why? Like get underneath that. Why is that? The reason why is because the light of the glory of God exposes us, doesn't it? Just like back in the garden when Adam and Eve were exposed. God's glory highlights our lack, our dependence, our creatureliness. It highlights we want to be in control of our own lives. We want to have the job of king and sit on the throne of our own heart. But the truth is, we're not qualified for that job, right? And when the light of the glory of God presses in on us, it shows us our insecurities, and that scares us to the core of who we are. God's holiness exposes our sinfulness. His power shows us our weakness. God's glory, really, it shows us our darkness, and we can't take it. So we prefer the darkness rather than the light. I'm not making that up. That's what Jesus himself said. John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So at Jesus's birth, right, just picture this with me, when the shepherds encounter the light of the glory of God, they're filled with great fear. And the shepherds show us how as people, we also respond to the reality of Christmas in our creatureliness with great fear. So what hope is there? That brings us to our second emphasis today, What is Christmas from heaven's perspective? So just look with me down at verses 10 and 11 and hear heaven's interpretation of these events. And actually, we'll start, uh, yeah, 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ The Lord. In other words, the angel is saying, I've got the solution for your fear. And do you know what the solution is? It's Christmas, right? That's amazing. It's Christmas. What are they to behold? What are they to look at? To fix their attention on? What makes it so they don't have to fear anymore? It's good news of great joy. Heaven breaks in and says, And the term there in your Bible in front of you when it says good news, hear that as gospel because that's what it is. It's the gospel of great joy, right? So if we went in the way back machine and you heard this like the original audience of Luke and you opened up the scroll, back in then like in ancient times, before then and around that time, good news would be announced whenever like one king conquered another king, whenever one kingdom conquered another kingdom. So here in Luke 2, heaven is making a point. The long-awaited Savior is here. King Jesus is born. He's entering onto the scene. The angel is really saying, this is really good news of great joy for all people. And because of that, you don't have to be afraid anymore. So think about it. Why can heaven say that. It's not just to like put a band-aid on our fears and make us feel better. Heaven has a reason the angel, the messenger can proclaim. You don't have to fear anymore. And it's because of who Jesus is, because of what he's coming to do. It's right here in our text in these verses in front of you. Just look at verse 11. We see that Jesus's birth is good news because of who he is. Like picture this. The heavenly messenger (laughs) comes to earth to give a birth announcement. And what are the names in the birth announcement? They point to something. They point to the identity and deity of Jesus. Heaven says this baby that's in this manger, this Jesus is the long-awaited Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those terms are packed full with Old Testament meaning and show that Jesus' birth is prophecy being fulfilled. This means that Jesus is the long-promised Savior who would be born in Bethlehem like Micah 5.2 promised. Jesus is the Christ. That means he's the anointed one. He is the Messiah, okay? Young people, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? It's his identity. It's who he is. Jesus is the Savior King who was the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And the angel says, He's here. He's been born. Maybe unlike anything they had imagined or had a category for, but the birth announcement from heaven says, He's here. He's been born. The angel also says, Jesus is Christ, the Lord. That's amazing this newborn baby. Think of the dependence of a newborn wrapped and in this manger because there was no room in the inn. This Jesus Christ is the Lord. Not a Lord, not one of many Lords you can choose from. He is the Lord. That's what heaven says. This word For Lord here, it carries with it from the Old Testament, the covenant name of God. So when you see in your Bible, even if you hear it in Linus's voice, just watched it yesterday. I love Linus when he drops a blanket, right? That's awesome, okay? Even if you hear that, Christ the Lord. When heaven says that Jesus is the Lord, heaven is saying this baby, this Jesus, is none other than God. And God is here to save us. If you see Christmas as having any other meaning than that, you have imported your own unbelief and your own preferences to God's word. You can believe heaven's announcement of what it tells us about what Christmas is, or you can believe what our culture and our heart believe about Christmas. Maybe even if you get all the warm fuzzies at Christmas time, maybe if eggnog's still your favorite drink and you love all the movies, maybe you even like the Hallmark channel. I want to say no judgment, but I'd be lying, right? If, if that's you, like, okay, but don't miss what heaven says the meaning of Christmas is all about. This really is the gospel of joy. Okay. If we're not careful, that can like sound really good, but then it just passes in one ear and out the other ear, and we move on to our Christmas meal, which is great, but we miss the wonder of it, right? So I want to share with you a true story that for me, and I hope for you, really helps illustrate how Christmas is the good news of great joy, how it's the joy underneath all true joys and some of you are gonna light up when I share this. Back in 1929, two friends took a really important walk along a river outside Oxford, England. One friend is J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a believer. One friend was C.S. Lewis, who at that time was not a Christian yet. Tolkien is talking to Lewis about how important Christianity is on this long walk that like lasted till 3 a.m., but Lewis basically didn't see any relevance, right? Okay, there's this historical figure Jesus. He could give like intellectual, you know, acknowledgement to that. But this person didn't have any relevance in my life today. Lewis would say. Then Tolkien started talking to C.S. Lewis about joy. Basically, Tolkien and Lewis talked about what happens in the presence of great music. great art, or maybe like the most beautiful landscape you've ever seen, right? Some of you are nodding your head right now. We we get this, don't we? When you encounter that kind of greatness, that beauty, that does something to us, doesn't it? That affects us in some kind of way, right? So Tolkien's saying that, C.S. Lewis agrees with that, that when you get in the presence of these great things, you feel there is a perfect love out there you feel that there is a deep happiness and meaning to life, that there is some sort of reality that you're out of touch with that's just beyond your grasp. Lewis said, yeah, I acknowledge that. I feel those things, even though I don't think it's true, right? So picture with me on this walk. Then Tolkien, right, I'm summarizing this. He talks about how the beauty and the joy that you kind of have like this sense of Right? It's not actually located in those things. It only comes through those things. Lewis told Tolkien, Clive Staples Lewis turns to J.R. Tolkien, amazing scene, and he basically says, Of course I know that, right? But Lewis said that even though these things gave him and give us like a sense of real meaning, listen to what Lewis says. He says they're all myths. Myths are only lies breathed through silver, is what C.S. Lewis says. But what Tolkien says next would reverberate through the rest of Lewis's life. And I'm sharing this with you because it helps us picture and get what great joy is. So as they walked along the river, Tolkien challenges Lewis to think about the logic of reality, right? I love food, so I'm going to put it in my terms. Think about your desire for food, right? When you get hungry, there is no promise on the other side that you're going to get something to eat, right? But wouldn't you agree with me, like logically, if you have a hunger for food, there is such a thing as food, like you are designed to be satisfied and sustained by something like food, hence you have a desire for it. So Tolkien asked Lewis, how is it possible that you feel there's an underlying reality, a truth, a love, a joy that nothing in this world can satisfy if that actually doesn't exist anywhere, right? So Tolkien asks Lewis to be honest. Why would great art, great music, a beautiful landscape make you feel the way that it makes you feel? Tolkien presses his whole point and he asked C.S. Lewis, do you understand what Christmas is all about? Right? What Christmas is all about. That the underlying reality, the truth, the perfect love, basically the joy, that great art gets you near, but it never allows you to like get it and be satisfied with it. Christmas shows us that there's one spot in history, history where that underlying reality broke in broke into history, and the truth became a historical fact. Lewis, he writes a book later on called Surprised by Joy that touches on some of this. Lewis began to think, if all this is true, if I believe in Jesus Christ, I get the very thing that great art only points to but can never satisfy. And Tolkien tells Lewis, yes, yes, he gets it. He understood what Christmas is all about. And just kind of paint another layer on this. Uh, Later on, some of you know this, after Lewis becomes a Christian, he would say that these things that make us have a sense of the deeper joy reality, he says those things are only a scent of the flower we've never found. They're the echo of a tune we've never heard and that this is not a neurotic fantasy, but it's the truest index of our real situation. Doesn't that resonate with you? Doesn't that resonate? Yeah, amen. And do you know what Christmas tells us? Jesus is the flower. He's the tune. You've been longing for your whole life. And heaven breaks in and says this. This is good news of great joy. Later on, Lewis, you know this. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He would write, Queen Lucy says this, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world, right? Lewis got it. He understood Christmas from heaven's perspective that the only true satisfaction is in and flows from the gospel of great joy. Because when we behold the light of Jesus, it shines into our hearts and it melts our fears. Heaven is saying, you don't have to fear anymore. Behold the good news of great joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is good news of great joy. So this brings us to our third and final emphasis here on Christmas Eve. What does this mean for us? It means everything. (laughs) It really does. It means everything. It means Christmas is good news because Jesus really is who he said he is. And because of that, we don't have to fear anymore. But instead, we can have great joy. And I want to encourage you, this means three specific things for us. And I hope you really hear me today on Christmas Eve. The good news, the gospel of great joy first means that we can trust God. Why can we trust God? I don't want you to hear because the guy up front told me I'm supposed to. We can trust God because of who he is and where he is in the story. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. I enjoy history. Some of you don't, so give me grace right now, okay? But in the early 60s, communist Russia, the Soviet Union sends the first guy to space, right? And the, the leader of the communist party in the Soviet Union at that time, after this cosmonaut comes back, he says, hey, shocking surprise, the cosmonaut didn't find God in space. And he used that as like, there's no such thing as God, right? It's a figment of your imagination, etc." Well, our man C.S. Lewis hears about this. He's been a Christ follower for a while now, and he pens an article in response. In the article, Lewis said, if there is a God who created us, we wouldn't find him by flying up into space. That's because God wouldn't relate to human beings. This is how Lewis puts it. God wouldn't relate to human beings as like two people on the first and second floor of an apartment, right? You don't get in the elevator on the first floor earth Go up to the second floor space. Oh, hi, God, I'm your downstairs neighbor, right? That's not how God would relate to us, Lewis says. Lewis says that God would have to relate to us differently. That the only way we'd be able to know about God is not by going up to him in space, but only if God came down and revealed himself to us. So Christmas shows us that God really did that, didn't he? And how did he do it? By writing himself into the story. So one of my favorite examples of this and what this means that God wrote himself into the story is something I learned about a woman named Dorothy Sayers. I don't know if I'm fixated on Oxford, England or what, but Dorothy Sayers, also around Oxford, also a friend of C.S. Lewis. This kind of a theme here today, I'm realizing as I'm standing in front of you. Uh, so she was a friend, again, of Lewis, and she was actually one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, right? Dorothy Sayers was a writer, and a lot of her writings focus on, like, this mystery detective series. And her most famous series had a main character. Listen to this main character's name. It's awesome. Lord Peter Wimsey, right? There'd probably be a PBS multiple series on that today. So Lord Peter Whimsey was a fictional character. She created a detective who solved mysteries, right? But you know what happens? About halfway through this detective mystery series, a new character shows up, a woman by the name of Harriet Vane. And what's interesting is that Harriet was also, in this fictional story, was also one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, and she was also a writer of mystery fiction. And in the story, just listen to this, in the story, Harriet falls in love with Lord Peter Whimsey, they get married, they solve lots of crimes together, right? And they live happily ever after. I'm not sharing that with you because it sounds like a Hallmark movie, okay? It's much, much more important than that. Why am I sharing this with you about Dorothy Sayers? Because most Sayers scholars think that she looked into the world she had created as an author and the man she had created, and she loved him. (laughs) And she wrote herself into the story because he was lonely and she could meet his need with herself. Isn't that amazing? But now juxtapose that against Christmas. (laughs) The reality of Christmas is infinitely more glorious and beautiful than that because Christmas shows us that God looked into the world he created, And he wrote himself into the story, didn't he? Not because of any lack in himself, but because of his perfect, glorious love. And he didn't come simply to embrace us. He came to die for us. Not because of our loveliness, but because of his. Isn't that amazing? So if the all-glorious God of the universe writes himself into the story like that, Christmas shows us that we can trust him. Second, what does this mean for us? Christmas means that we must ponder and treasure this good news of great joy. Look down at verse 19 right here in our text. What did Mary do? It says she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And I would submit to you that we need to do the same thing. To ponder here, it means to put something into context, to make connections, to really think something out, right? So to ponder means to objectively, primarily with your mind, consider, reflect, and meditate on this good news of great joy, this good news of Christmas and its implications for you, for your life, and for the world around you. It's what it means to ponder this like Mary. But we miss the glory and the wonder of Christmas if we only stop there. We don't just stop at pondering. We also need to treasure this gospel. That's what God's word is saying right here. We need to treasure this good news of great joy. That means it has to be applied to our hearts. To treasure it means to savor it to delight in it, to like wring the joy out of it, to be satisfied by the joy of it. Treasuring really has more to do with our heart, right? And when the Bible talks about our heart, it's not just the beating organ in your chest right now. It's talking about the core of your being, like the center of what you love. So to treasure this good news of great joy means to apply it into your heart. We press it into our minds by pondering and then we take it all the way into our hearts, right? Through, tre- through treasuring so that it actually affects us deeply until it shapes us and informs what we love, what we find lovely. The good news of great joy has to sink into us in order to really comfort us, in order to lovingly challenge us, In order for the good news of great joy, in other words, to change you, you have to treasure it. If you're only pondering it, you're going to know a lot of good stuff about Christmas, but I bet your life will be out of step with the good news of great joy. We have to treasure it. We have to treasure it. We have to behold it until it gets underneath our fears. I heard this example, and I hope it hits home for you like it did me. What if later today on Christmas Eve, you get a text or some call from a long-lost family member, not that you're like a Nigerian prince or anything, right? But you get this call, you're like, hey, and it's real. You have been awarded, right? You've been given like $100 billion, and it's real, like that really happens. What do you think that would do in your life? Would you just go through the motions and, like, would your next day just be the same as this? Not at all. If your inheritance, if you inherited $100 billion, it would change everything. Like, it would change how you see the world, how you live, how you feel, right? It would change how you feel. But then think about that. $100 billion and then compare that to who Jesus is and the glory of what he offers, Right? that he gives you good news of great joy now and for all of eternity. And Jesus is a king, so he brings a kingdom that will never end. That is way more better than a $100 billion, right? Way more better. But I wonder, how much do you ponder and treasure the gospel of great joy in the way that it deserves? Because you would do that with $100 billion, wouldn't you? But who Jesus is, is so much greater than that. So we have to ponder it. We have to treasure it. And as we say weekly from the pulpit of this church, if you're here today, especially maybe on Christmas Eve, and you don't know Jesus, we're so glad you're here. Like, I'm really glad you're here. Church is the best place to consider the claims of Jesus Christ. And I wonder what you think about all of this. Does it feel like a myth? Does it feel like the opium of the masses to you, (laughs) right? I want to encourage you today though, just like C.S. Lewis, you have to do something with the reality and the wonder and the great joy of Jesus Christ. And maybe for you, if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins yet, maybe like you even wish in your heart of hearts that all this really was true. But maybe again, you just haven't believed it. Maybe it even feels beyond belief for you. And if that's you, I would lovingly invite you today to believe in Jesus, to be your savior and your Lord. Prepare Jesus' room in your life by confessing and repenting of your sin, of trying to be your own God. Lay that down and believe in Jesus as the great joy that all the other joys have been pointing you to your whole life, right? Joys work like signposts in your life, and it's pointing you to the good news of great joy, and that's only the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, finally, and in closing, this good news of great joy means we must praise and proclaim. It's right here on the pages of scripture in front of us. Just like heaven did in verse 14, and just like the shepherds did in verses 17 and 19. And you know what's amazing? Jesus will be praised and proclaimed for all of eternity, In Revelation 5, okay, that's going to be our benediction verse here in a few minutes. In Revelation 5, the angels praise Jesus saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You can't sideline Jesus in your life. You have to deal with who he really is. So the same angels that gave glory to God at Jesus' first coming are going to be praising him for all of eternity like that. That's awesome to think about, isn't it? That welcomes us, us into the wonder of Christmas. And for those of us here in this room who are Christ followers, we get to join in that now, right? And how can we not? Because this really is good news Of great joy. So I want to ask you this. Do you really, in your heart of hearts, if truth serum was injected into your heart, do you really believe this is the best news? That Jesus is the most important and relevant and glorious and joyful thing that your neighbor needs, that your non-Christian family member needs? that your friend needs, your coworker, your classmate, that you need to be the center of your life. Because if Jesus is savior and Lord, if this really is, if heaven's telling the truth and this really is good news of great joy, that should be reflected in our lives today, shouldn't it? That has to do something to us and inside of us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, captures this reality. On what should mark our lives because we're in the light of Jesus Christ, because of what Christmas means. Just hear this. This is a Christmas song. 1 Peter 2, second part of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what our lives should be animated by if this really is good news of great joy. So as we move to a close here, for those who are Christians here today, is your life marked more by fear or by beholding and proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ? We live in a fearful age. So many things are designed to pour lighter fluid on the fire of fear in your life. Are you more afraid or are you more beholding the gospel? And our text, God offers us relief from our fear. The relief is to behold, to look at Christmas, to look at who God is and what he has done Again, if Jesus really is who he said he is, if God really wrote himself into the story in this kind of way, and if you're really loved to the degree this gospel of great joy says you are, what do you really have to be afraid of? What do you have to be afraid of? That's amazing. A life of beholding the gospel of great joy will be a life where fear melts away. That's what the center of our text is leaving us with today. So in closing, I want you to hear God's word echoing in your heart now. Again, verses 10 and 11. Ponder this, treasure this now today. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we praise you for the gospel of great joy. We confess and repent. Lord, we are prone to not behold it. We are prone to not believe it. So Father, Help us today. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. I ask that you will make each of us and make us as a church a people who rejoice in this gospel of great joy. May we ponder it and treasure it and behold it and overcome our fear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.